Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like lobsters, treacle, and incredulity. I know, incredulity was something that I came up with having watched the news. Just absolutely (laughs) incredulous of the events unfolding around the world at the moment. Or we could do crabs, labs, and tabs... Slabs, flabs, and drabs. I think we should do crabs out of those because I have no idea how to do the others. (laughs) However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of the bottom, yes, the posterior, has its own very unexpected history. It's in fact all about fashion and femininity and masculinity. It's about political protest, cycling technology, the Reformation. Of course it is. Everything is about the Reformation. It's about political protest and it's also all about the very important invention of comfort. Mm. Or... That the history of leaving home, which was one of our homeschooling episodes, is all about the Viking invasions. And we are thinking of hatching, rehatching some of our schooling episodes, aren't we, Sam? Yes, James, very much looking forward to launching some more homeschooling stuff. Now, you're all wondering who who is my fellow presenter. Let me just say that if history were a pocket of magma, this man would be the energy of eruption itself, spouting forth those molten rocks of the past, firing them miles into the air, making newsworthy stories of the latent power of history. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is... Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. (laughs) Hello, hello. And you may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a volcano-related historian, he'd only be the historical equivalent of Mount Vesuvius, which, as we all know, erupted in 79 AD. So volcanically does he erupt at the thought of historical endeavour, and yet also, like this famed Roman volcano, which buried the city of Pompeii beneath layers of ash and pumice, so too do his own ferociously hot eruptions leave behind the as if frozen in time, 
the treasures of ancient historical civilizations. He too is an archaeologist of the past, sifting through the treasures of long-lost civilizations. Yes, you've guessed it. It's your friend and mine, the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. What a wonderful introduction, as always. Um, I'm always fascinated to hear what you're going to say about me. Every week it's very different, James. Um, Hello, everyone. We are doing volcanoes because of all of the volcanic activity in the news at the moment um, with what's happening in poor old Tonga. Uh, James, have you been keeping abreast of what's been happening? Do you know, I have been keeping abreast. And when we came up with the idea of volcanoes, uh, this hadn't happened. So it was uber timely. Uh, terrifying yeah. to see the impact that this has had. Yes, I, I've been glued to, I've been glued to the news media uh, for this and other things. But yeah, the the volcanic ash blanketing Tonga, the loss of communications, the enormous effort to go and help people, you know, who have suffered uh, from this has. Yeah, it's been absolutely um, f- equally fascinating, but also horrifying. Uh, to watch happening. Yeah, it's interesting you saying about us having decided to do it beforehand, and I noticed that as well, and it made me worried that us choosing to do it had somehow caused it to happen. So I think we've got to be a bit more careful about the choices of our episodes. Well, I- influential though we are, Sam, <laughs> I'm, I, I think we can we can say that we quite safely say that we didn't ha- we didn't cause the earthquake in Tonga. Yeah. Nonetheless, um, th- there's so much great journalism out there at the minute about what's happening with Tonga, and it really does help you. Um, Think about uh, how you can do a history of volcanoes because there are so many different themes, and and one of the obvious ones is how do, how do you get 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 past the obvious of of the eruption? It's quite interesting starting with Pompeii. Um, I quite I always like that with volcanoes. Here you've got a very interesting mixture of destruction and preservation. Um, so historians and archaeologists actually do quite like volcanoes, but the people who were there at the time obviously do not quite like volcanoes. And so there is a, a very interesting, um, uh, um, not a kind of a tension, but um, you've got these, these two different aspects of, of destruction and preservation at the same time. Um, how do you get past the obvious in other ways? Well, I think it's it's very clear that there are so many different ways that a volcanic eruption can affect the planet, can affect people. And that's what you really see very clearly looking at what's happening in Tonga. Yes, you've got death and destruction, but you've also got landscape changes. There's an effect on the ecology, on the biology. Um, and, and that really made me stop and think, because we we, we can see what's happened, right? Um, we've got these amazing visuals. There are, uh, there are, you know, millions of words being written about it, and we know what's happened. We've got the science that backs up what's happened. But if you place yourself in a, in a, in a pre-scientific period, a pre-media period, where things would have happened, a sky might have gone black, um, people's crops might have died, they might have been affected by a tsunami uh, in an island nearby in the Pacific, whatever it might be. You you search around for explanations for these unexpected but incredibly violent events um, and there is a, there is a very interesting history in that so it's the it's the explanation of events that you know, we we now know why they happen and we can see them happening but it's really is quite powerful to stop and think well good good lord how would you how would you actually explain it um, and that raises all sorts of questions about religion about belief systems about 
credulity when someone comes along and says, oh, what, uh, what, what happened there was the cause of that imp or that demon or whatever it might be. So um, I, I thought that was fascinating, James. And there are various ways that you can look into all of this. Um, and there are a number of um, quite extraordinary cultural impacts of volcanic eruptions when you actually stop and you try and work out how a volcanic eruption might have affected people not in the immediate vicinity. And that's the one thing we've got to do here with these volcanic eruptions is not not just just think about what's happening in Tonga or even nearby, but what how how this might affect people um, five years in the future. A hundred years in the future, three centuries in the future. Now, if you have a volcanic eruption that is powerful enough, then we now know, looking back through the annals of history, that it can have an effect. There are some fascinating examples. There was an eruption of a volcano in Indonesia in 1257, and um, it was so powerful that the areas that were devastated by that volcanic eruption was still uninhabited eight centuries later. So you've got a very you know dramatic effect on on how and where people live in the world. But more importantly than that, we know that the ash that filled up the sky was there was so much of it that temper well, global temperatures cooled. It created what was known as a mini ice age. It slowed the growth of trees, and that in itself had. Um, a really significant effect, particularly with some species like spruce, willow and maple, um, which are used to make violins, James. And it has been posited that the Stradivarius, that most famous, wonderful violin, has achieved its unique sound because it was made of specific woods uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, which had been enjoying very slow growth caused by a mini ice age centuries before caused by a volcano. Um, it was interesting what I was saying earlier about, you know, blaming people or trying to explain away what's happened with these enormous eruptions as well. Uh, often anti-Semitism has been um, has come to the fore in the aftermath of volcanoes. So Jewish populations being blamed by diseases brought about by lower temperatures or erratic weather, whatever it might have been caused by a volcano. Witchcraft trials, again, another example of them um, uh, also coming to the fore often in the aftermath of volcanic eruptions, which I thought was very interesting indeed. Um, and it, it, even in its own way has survived in some art. Um, Krakatoa erupted 1883 um, in Indonesia and it made the skies go a funny colour and it's now claimed by some that in Edvard Munch's The Scream, that famous uh, picture of of, um, of misery and uh, depression and anxiety painted by Munch, the sky is red and uh, some people believe it is red because of the eruption of Krakatoa and it wasn't uh, a, a, a kind of a metaphor for anything. He was actually painting the sky as he saw it. Um, there are other examples of eruptions uh, um, affecting uh, literature as well. Very interesting one here. 1815, Mount Tambora erupts. The following year, 1816, it's known as the year without a summer. There's snow, there's a foot of snow in June in the northeast of the States. Uh, it's during that year that Percy Shelley Lord Bo- and Lord Byron um, go away on a holiday in Lake Geneva, and the weather is so atrocious. Um, Shelley's brought along his, uh, his uh, a friend of his, Mary. She's eighteen, his future wife, and they all sit round in a corner and uh, and um, 
they make up ghost stories. And it was during this period, um, sheltering during a, a period of, of really remarkable um, temperature and weather change caused by the volcano that Mary sat down and she wrote Frankenstein. So all sorts of interesting cultural effects of um, of volcanic eruptions, as long as you kind of train yourself to think about it in the right way, and which involves taking a, a huge and uh, lengthy chronological perspective, but also a global perspective on how, just how significantly these volcanic eruptions can face, can shape, sorry, can shape and change the world in which we live. Goodness me, Sam Willis. That was like a volcanic eruption in itself. That <laughs> enormous monologue of lava and, and volcanic-shaped uh, analysis and facts. I mean, there are so many ways that I could follow that flow of that sort of um, hot lava um, here. I mean, one of the interesting things, I think, uh, is the way in which... There's been a lot written at the moment about, about the impact of volcanoes. And one of the most interesting articles that i read was about was entitled volcanoes have shaped human history since the beginning and this talks about an article written by scientists a few years ago in um, summer uh, 2020 when they where they're basically trying to connect the eruption of the okmok volcano lated located in alaska that they argue probably contributed to the fall of the Roman Republic in 43 BC. And then it goes on to sort of pontificate how volcanoes in the past have had these sort of massive you know, impacts, um, you know, and connected them to events in history. So basically what they were arguing there was that this is in a, a paper published on the 22nd of June uh, 2020, uh, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that claims that the 43 BC eruption of the Okmok volcano spurred climatic changes that led to the fall of the Roman Republic and subsequently to the rise of the Roman Empire. And I'll read, read here. That the argument is that during an eruption, a volcano can belch out millions of tonnes of ash and sulphate aerosols into the atmosphere. They can blot out the sun and in the short term dramatically cool down the global climate, often leading to devastating crop losses, famine, disease. And these aerosols also become trapped in ice, providing scientists with a critical window into the world's climate history. So basically looking into this, they've been able to connect that to the rise of the Roman Empire. So brilliant. Another argument that they put forward is the the Deccan Traps eruption in southern India roughly 65 million years ago is, of course, connected or contributed to the downfall of the dinosaurs, which links back <coughs> to our podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago on the history of the dinosaurs. And they can, then you can go through all of these other sort of examples of... Uh, of volcanic eruptions that have these sort of massive um, massive sort of implications and impacts on the world. But what I want to talk about is I want to talk about Krakatoa. And again, what I don't want to talk about is necessarily so much about the impact of the volcano. I don't want to talk about the circumstances, although one of the things that I am going to talk about is that we have some really amazing first-hand uh, 
um, eyewitness accounts of it. Um, this was the volcano that you were talking about earlier on, Sam, in, in Indonesia. It was mm-hmm. a volcano that erupted in 1883. The sound blast popped eardrums about 40 miles away and apparently could be heard nearly 3,000 miles away in Australia. And this is still considered to be one of the loudest sounds ever heard in the world to this wow. to this very day. So it is it is huge. Um, the thing was, it 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 exploded on the 26th of August in 1883. But as early as May, there are sightings of clouds of ash and dust rising from the, this 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 island. What I'm interested in, though is some of the first-hand accounts that that sort of that we have that survive. And one of the most interesting and fullest accounts is a description given at the San Francisco Hydrographic Office by Captain Watson, who was um, on the British ship Charles Bow, which was in the near vicinity at the time. And it's it's just worth reading it because it is so full, so graphic... Uh, in its detail. And he remembers that um, on about 7pm on the 22nd of August, so this is several days before the actual eruption, in the latitude of five of 15 degrees 30 south and longitude 105 east, the sea suddenly assumed a milky white appearance beginning to the eastward but soon spreading all around and lasting until about 8pm. There were some cumulus clouds in the sky but many stars were shining and from east to north-northeast a strong white haze or silvery glare. This occurred again between 9 and 10pm but disappeared when the moon rose. The clouds appeared to be edged with a pinkish coloured light, the sky also seeming to have extra light in it as when the aurora is showing faintly. So already you're seeing changes in the atmosphere that are generated by the volcano. He goes on on the 24th in latitude 90 degrees 30 south, longitude 105 east. This was repeated, showing when the sky was overcast, but disappearing when the moon rose. On the night of the 25th, standing in for Java Head, the land was covered with thick, dark clouds and heavy lightning was frequent. On the morning of the 26th, made Java Head light about 9am past Prince's Island and had a sharp squall from west-southwest with torrents of rain. It's almost like the, the shipping forecast here. At noon, <laughs> Krakatoa was northeast of us, but only the lower portion of the east point was to be seen, the rest of the island being enveloped in heavy blackness. And we know that about two-thirds of the island submerged under the, under the, the water uh, after, the, after the eruption. He continues, at 2.30pm we noticed some agitation, <laughs> quite a gross understatement, about the point of Krakatoa, clouds or something being propelled from the northeast point with great velocity. At 3.30 we heard above us and about the island a strange sound as of a mighty crackling fire or the discharge of heavy artillery at one or two seconds interval. At 4.15 
Krakatoa bore north, one half east, ten miles distant. We observed a repetition of the noise noted at 3.30, only much more furious and alarming, the matter, whatever it was, being propelled with amazing velocity to the northeast. To us, it looked like blinding rain and had the appearance of a furious squall of ashen hue, at once shortened sail to topsails and foresail. At five, the roaring noise continued and was increasing, Darkness spread over the sky, and a hail of pumice stone fell on us, of which many pieces were of considerable size and quite warm. We were obliged to cover up the skylights to save the glass, while our feet and heads had to be protected with boots and sou'westers. About six, the fall of larger stones ceased, but there continued a steady downpour of a smaller kind, most blinding to the eyes and covering the deck to a depth of three or four inches very speedily. While an intense blackness covered the sky and land and sea, we sailed on our course until at 7pm we got what we thought was a sight of fourth point light, then brought ship to wind to the wind southwest, as we could not see to any distance and knew not what might be in the strait. The night was a fearful one, the blinding fall of sand and stones, the intense blackness above and around us, broken only by the incessant glare of varied kinds of lightning and the continued explosive roars of Krakatoa made our situation a truly awful one. At 11pm, having stood off from the Java shore with the wind strong from the southwest, the island being west-northwest distant 11 miles became visible. Chains of fire appeared to ascend and descend between it and the sky, while on the southwest end there seemed to be a continued roll of balls of white fire. The wind, though strong, was hot and choking, sulphurous with a smell as of burning cinders, some of the pieces falling on us being like iron cinders. And so he goes on and on and on. Um, at 11.15, there was a most fearful explosion in the direction of Krakatoa. Then, over 30 miles distance, we saw a wave rush right on to the Button Island, apparently sweeping entirely over the southern part and rising halfway up the north and east sides, 50 or 60 feet, and then continuing on to the Java shore. This was evidently a wave of translation and not of progression, for it was not felt at the ship. This we saw repeated twice, but the helmsman said he saw it once before we looked. At the same time, the sky rapidly covered in, the wind came strong from southwest to south, and by eleven and by eleven thirty a.m. we were enclosed in a darkness that might almost be felt, and then commenced a downpour of mud, sand, and I know not what. The ship going northeast and north seven knots per hour under three lower topsails. And he talks about the sky closing in. At noon, the darkness was so intense that we had to grope our way about the decks. And although speaking to each other on the poop, yet we could not see each other. This horrible state and downpour of mud and debris continued until 1.30pm. The roaring and lightning from the volcano being something fearful. By 2pm we could see some of the yards aloft and the fall of mud ceased. By 5pm the horizon showed out to the northward and eastward and we saw West Island bearing east and north just visible. 
Up to midnight the sky hung dark and heavy, a little sand falling at times and the roaring of the volcano very distinct, although we were fully 75 miles from Krakatoa. Such darkness and such a time in general few would conceive and many, I dare say, would disbelieve. The ship from trunk from truck to waterline was as if cemented. Spars, sails, blocks and ropes were in a horrible state, but thank God no one was hurt, nor was the ship damaged. But think of Anja, Merak and other little villages on the Java coast. This is the most extraordinary first-hand account and sighting from a, a nearby ship. But one of the most extraordinary things about the eruption of Krakatoa in August 1883 is that in many ways it was the first ever global media event. Now, if you think about it, 18 years earlier, Abraham Lincoln, the US president, was assassinated. And it took 12 whole days for the news to travel by oversea, over the ocean, to reach London. In that intervening period, the firm Reuters basically invented the underwater telegraph and laid underwater cables that would take messages between the US and Ireland and, and other parts of the world very, very quickly, which meant that in August 1883... News of Krakatoa reached London in about four minutes, as well as around the world. And so this great news story was reported very quickly by newspapers all over the place. And if you do a Google search, do a Google search or go into a collection of historical papers, you will come up with a mass of materials. And I just did did this and I came up with several uh, examples. The Milwaukee Journal on the 29th of August 1883 described it as, uh, you know, by th the, the headline went by thousands. People are killed. Greatest horror in the history of modern times. Thrilling scenes and incidents on the Java and adjacent islands. Whole villages buried. Um, and there's another one here in the um, in the Morning Post. Uh, the eruption of Krakatoa, uh, disappearance of towns, sunder straits, much change, great loss of life among Europeans and natives. And another one here, The uh, that's again the Milwaukee Journal there. But another one here is the is the um, is a painting of the eruption of Krakatoa. So there we are, Sam. This is the global media phenomenon of Krakatoa in, on the 26th of August 1883, which connects us to the communications revolution and the shrinking world that we see with the advent um, of the telegraph. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hmm, clever stuff indeed. I'm thinking more and more that there's 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 a great deal to these volcanoes. I came across a wonderful story from Alaska, and this is all about um, indigenous languages, about oral history. Um, I was also uh, thinking about this actually when I was researching for our uh, forthcoming episode on dogs, a similar sort of thing. Um, but here, uh, well, the dogs I'm going to be talking about. Um, uh, native tribes in northwestern australia but here we're in alaska northwestern america now what's interesting about this is that there's an oral traditions of volcanic eruptions um at the beginning of time so not quite a creation myth but one that they attribute to being hugely significant to the identity of variety of tribes um and historians of scientists have managed to date the volcano that exists in these oral traditions to 720, 720 AD. And it suggests that there's um, such an enormous eruption that there is ash fall all over the Yukon. And to such an extent that it actually triggers population displacement. It creates a wave of migrations. And that in turn, is is important, of course, but if you think about the implications of migration and population displacement over time, what you end up with is linguistic differentiation and um, the creation of distinct cultures and tribes. So it's been identified that this volcanic eruption actually led to the formation of the Pacific Athapascans and the Apache and the Navajo. And as an important part of that, it, it, it led to the creation of completely distinct languages. Um, 
Now, I think more there's a general point here, and it's all to do with the pace of change of history itself. So most environmental change, particularly, it's gradual, it's virtually imperceptible. Only now, uh, with modern focus on the media with climate change, are we kind of in any way attuned to it. And back in history, it needed to be something really quite devastating and dramatic to make people become really attuned to the way that uh, global events could affect uh, could affect nature, could uh, could affect the environment. Um, now I'm going to talk about these uh, these oral histories of the Athapascans, but um, there are various other examples as well. There is actually an entire history of uh, volcanoes existing in the oral histories of native peoples all over the world. Um, there's a, a volcano called Coseguina in Nicaragua, which erupted uh, in 1835. And um, here we've got an observation. I'm going to come and talk about this in a minute. It's actually who is collecting this information. An observation of old Indians still fix their ages and other events in relation to La Oscuridad Grande, the great darkness that accompanied the ashfall from this eruption. That's a, uh, that was a quote from 1919. You've got the Simshian Indians of British Columbia. They speak of a lava flow that advanced over one of their villages and caused them to abandon it. Um, it also created an extensive dam across the Nass River that obstructed salmon migrations. And th these particular events are said to have occurred at least 200 years before the actual telling of the stories. There are also uh, a number of time of darkness stories. This is something that comes again and again, a time of darkness stories. These are from native peoples of Papua New Guinea. And they're talking about a fall uh, of ash linked to a volcanic explosion on Long Island in the Bismarck Sea. Um, now, just to talk briefly about who actually collects these stories. So we're going to go back to my original point about this, uh, the era of the Yukon, North America, um, and the Athapascans. Um, and we know about this because of a chap called Emile Fortuné Petito, and he was a French missionary. And he's there in the Northwest Territories for 12 years. He becomes a notable Canadian cartographer. He's an ethnologist, geographer, a linguist, a writer, historian. He basically in hugely, deeply immerses himself in the culture. One of the things he does is he collects oral histories. He collects stories um, about uh, stories from, from, from the, the natives he's, he's working with. And this is one to do with this volcanic eruption that happened in 720. After the earth was rebuilt by Chapui, all men took refuge on very high ground, a high mountain, and there built something round and tubular, resembling the pipe of your stove, but very huge and very high. If the flood occurs again, and if it covers the earth, we will take refuge in this great height, they told themselves. All around this great height there were burning coal mines. Then, when they had raised their fort very high, they suddenly heard, coming from the side of the mountain, a terrible voice which mocked them and said laughingly, Your language is no longer the same. Your language is completely changed. It said to them, laughing in a sinister way. The men trembled with fear. At the same instant, the coal mines which smoked around them caught fire. The rocks exploded. The mountain top opened up and out of it came an enormous fire. Then it exploded with a great blast, and in its place there was nothing but a vast plain of rubble, covered with smoking debris. As for the men, stupefied and full of fear, they drifted away in small groups in all directions, completely unable to understand each other. This collapse of the high ground happened in the West. So that was a story collected by Petito in 1880. 
86, and there are numerous other ones. Um, and one of the interesting things about this particularly is that uh, there's evidence there that the, the, the people who actually told him this story had already been exposed to Christian teachings because it's not the only one. There are various other traditions here about, so about creation, but also about the creation of their language. And they all resemble the story of the biblical, uh, the biblical story of the Tower of Babel. So in this example uh, from Alaska, from the Yukon, what you've got is stories of volcanoes surviving for centuries in people's imaginations, but particularly being linked with the creation of language. Amazing. Samuel Willis, that is fascinating as ever. Now, I want to end with uh, going back to the beginning where you started, which was with Pompeii. And this was something that we used, the sort of um, the remains at Pompeii and Herculaneum were, you know, things that we use quite a lot in our book on the Romans, because so much um, evidence survives. And there's a brilliant book on Pompeii by Mary Beard that we found very, very useful. Um, But this was the this was basically what happened after the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79 when ash flew down from from the mountain side and over Pompeii and the and the countryside and the interesting thing here is that what it did was it it captured most people in the everyday activities that they were involved in and in particular Um, I'd like to connect this to an exhibition that I saw at the Ashmolean Museum a couple of summers ago called Last Supper in Pompeii, which focuses around food and drink. I think I've talked about this when we did our podcast on shops because it was an extraordinary exhibition that basically reconstructed the food history of the Roman past largely from what survives through Pompeii. Some other stuff, but, but you know, largely, largely this. So you've got people who are involved in buying and selling food <coughs> and wine and consuming and farming and all of those kinds of things. And one of the things that I really want to concentrate on is a little essay in the volume The Last Supper in Pompeii, which is the exhibition catalogue. And this is by a wonderfully titled, wonderfully named uh, scholar called Giuseppe Scapati. And it's a thing, a piece entitled The Resin Lady from Oplontis in Context. And this deals with a, a sort of human remains that survive within a villa, Villa B in Oplontis, uh, which was discovered between 1984 and 1991 when they were doing excavations. And what they found was a series of rooms with all sorts of things within it, metal tools, terracotta weights, marble, um, you know, food, um, things like pomegranates. There was straw in there. But one of the rooms in this villa uh, looks like it became a tomb for a group of people who were fleeing the volcano and they, you know, sheltered for refuge inside and what they did was they took all their possessions with them including jewellery and objects of bone and ivory and gold and silver coins and there was vessels 
And what we see is a number of, of skeletons. And normally, the way that you would, the way that you would, um, I suppose, I can't really think of the correct phrase of, of describing it. But basically what you have, when, when the volcano came down, people were entirely covered in it. And the the cavity was left as the remains of the body um, decayed. And so what you have is basically these hollow places um, underneath where the volcano was. So you, you have to have a very clever way of excavating those and then recreating the, the sort of the body that would have been in that space. And the traditional way is basically to make a cast out of plaster. But for these uh, particular uh, examples, these particular skeletons, what happened was that this traditional method of pouring plaster into the cavity left by the body um, is unsatisfactory and the casts basically break in the process of digging them out. And so what they do is they try a completely new technique of creating these human casts. And I was quite struck in the exhibition because they had several of these casts that were there and using this technique and this new technique was to basically create a cast in wax inside the area the space that was left in this void after the organic remains had decomposed when the body had decomposed and what you do then having got a cast in wax around that you then mold you make a mold out of plaster and into that, you then pour transparent epoxy resin, which when it dries, dries very, very hard. And the example that they use here is a skeleton, skeleton number 15 in this particular house, that they think belonged almost certainly to a woman. And the, the cavity that's left is of a female form, that is spread eagled, so basically on all fours and face down. So it's lying on the ground face, face down on floor level. And what was extraordinary about this was that they realised when they were putting in the, 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 the wax and, and putting the plaster around it, they realised that the victim's body had objects concealed under the right arm and they found there a bronze jug that this person had been had been carrying and they all they found that it had a, a handle on it that it had decoration on it with two waterfowl um and and various sort of other things so that they when she died she had obviously been carrying these things there was also a small basket of woven fibres that was near her left arm. There were also pieces of jewellery, uh, including five gold rings. Uh, on her upper left arm, she wore a golden armlet. And so when they are putting together this, when they're putting together this sort of reconstruction of her, they actually put in a fake um, example of jewellery on her so that that is actually cast in the epoxy resin, uh, so when it when it hardens, what I think is extraordinary about this, when you think about this, is that you are able to recreate not just the everyday 
details of people's lives, but also you are able to recreate their reactions to the volcano. So when Vesuvius was erupting, you've got these people who are fleeing, they're rushing inside, and this is a really interesting villa because you've got two what look like two groups. You've got what look like a group of high social status individuals who possess considerable wealth, who are living in the villa, who are there, and then another group of individuals, a second group, who presumably have fled from the local countryside and fled inside for refuge from this. So trapped within this villa is a sort of snapshot of people's reaction to the volcano. So there we are, Sam. Pompeii, archaeological technique and popular reactions to volcanic eruptions. Yeah, there's so much more as well we could talk about uh, volcanoes in in poetry, in uh, drama, in novels, uh, theatres, really interesting, great in, um, 18th century innovations bringing a kind of volcanic spectaculars to people. We haven't had time to talk about those, so maybe we'll come back to them another time. Thank you all so much for listening to our History of Volcanoes. We've got lots more coming your way. Do please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea, do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And you can follow me on social media. I'm at Twitter, at James Daybell. The podcast is is on at unexpected pod we are also on instagram and facebook so come and befriend us there check out also our website historiesoftheunexpected.com for all that we have been doing and our back catalogue and signed books and if you want to become a patron of histories of the unexpected do head over to patreon.com and anything that you can help to support us in our quest to change the way in which we think about the past it would be greatly received absolutely will be thank you all so much for listening as always guys we'll be back again soon cheerio take care guys bye mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.